Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 283. And today in the show, I'm joined by my buddy, Josh Furter Hilliard, and my father to discuss our hopes, dreams, and plans for restoring and reviving our family deer camp. All right, welcome to the Wired Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And as you just heard me say a second ago, I'm going to be joined here in a minute by my dad and my buddy Furter to discuss a little bit of the history of our family deer camp from a habitat standpoint. We haven't really done that before. And then talk about how we're trying to build things back up kind of trying to get it back to what it used to be, or hopefully even better. Um, and there's a lot to talk about. There are a lot of different projects we've been working on. Uh, we, we met with a forester here re- recently, so want to share all of that. But before that, I do want to let you know that, yes, we are taking a break from the series that we kicked off three weeks ago, in which we've been examining different lessons about peak performance from outside the hunting world and then exploring how those routines and practices and ideas can be applied into the hunting world. So, yeah, we're taking a break here today, but don't worry, we're going to be continuing We're going to get more episodes like this very soon. I'm in the works trying to get more scheduled out. Uh, So keep an eye out for that because we've been getting a lot of great feedback. And I personally have just really been enjoying these topics too. So if you haven't yet listened to episodes 280, 281, and 282, I'd highly recommend you go check them out. Just as a refresher, in 280, we discussed the power of habits and how habits and how creating good habits can help us grow as hunters. In 281, we spoke with Olympic gold medal winning skier David Wise about how his training and different routines that have helped him achieve professional athletic success can also translate to hunting. And in 282, I spoke with author Brad Stolberg about his research into the science of peak performance and passion and what all that can mean for our pursuits as hunters. And man, I just think, I think the ideas covered in these last three episodes, they might be some of the very most important that we've ever discussed. You know, how to execute on goals, how to be mentally tough, how to handle high pressure situations, how to keep your passion for hunting from going overboard, how to develop good habits, you know, all of this stuff, probably more than some new trail camera tactic or more than some hunting strategy. These things I think are what will really help you take your hunting to the next level. So go back and listen to those if you haven't. Now, secondly, 
I do want to bring up one more point kind of along the lines of these past few episodes that's been just kind of festering on my mind since our our last episode. Just been thinking a little bit, you know, we've been talking so much about, you know, how to be a peak performer, how to do all these things to get better at this, to get better at that, to develop a better life that's going to help you as a hunter, yada, yada, yada. All these ideas, all these practices and ways to take control of your life, develop mental toughness, develop physical toughness, you know, none of that stuff is easy. And if you're at all like me, you you so badly want to be the best hunter you can be and you want to see positive results right away and you want to reach your potential, but it's not easy. It's it's not just going to come overnight. And I think there's there's this human tendency, or at least I, I follow this sometimes, that you know, when you hear about stuff like this, when you hear about peak performers, um, it's really easy to, to hear and to see these people and think, oh man, I could never do that. I'm just not good enough. Or maybe you, you try to do something and it doesn't go as well as we thought it was going to be. Or you, whatever change you implement, you're not as good as the person you heard in the podcast or the person you see on TV or the person in the magazine. And if that's the case, then you start to feel like a failure since you can't be just as good as this other thing that you put on a pedestal. I think that's human and that happens, but it's just so important to remember that we all have our challenges, even the TV hunters, even the professional athletes, even the super successful CEOs and the New York Times bestselling authors, they all struggle. And, and I, I'm a perfect example of that I struggle with all these things. I mean, that's why I'm so fascinated by this stuff, because I, I know I struggle with it and I want to get better and I want to keep pushing on that. But I mean, I struggle to keep up on my physical fitness. I struggle to not get lazy and drop off on my archery practice. I struggle with procrastination and getting all the projects I want to accomplish getting done on time. I struggle in high-pressure situations. I struggle keeping a good mindset and a positive attitude. I absolutely struggle with controlling and moderating my passion for hunting. And I think I think it's okay to say that, to, to acknowledge it, to just let it to let it kind of slip off your shoulders. There's this big weight, I think, that we carry around when we, at least to the outside world and even maybe inside our own heads, we try to try to be perfect or we try to make it seem like we got it all together. But guess what? I'm not perfect. I'm betting you're not perfect. Um, so I think it's okay to just to say that, to own it, to, to just name it, to, to freely admit, hey, you know what? I'm not a peak performer in all these ways yet. I'm not the best hunter in the world. I'm not the best businessman in the world or the best athlete in the world. Um, but that's okay. I can, I can take a step in the right direction. So just remember, I mean, the next time you've, I don't know, the next time your preparation for the season isn't going as well as you promised it was going to, or maybe you just had another blow up fight with your wife about your hunting plans, or maybe you just blew your best opportunity at a buck all year. You just missed, you whiffed it all the work and then you whiffed it. Just remember it's okay. We all do it. None of us have it all figured out. And that's that's part of it. It's okay not to be perfect. Take a deep breath and then move forward again. And, and, and I mean, I'm obviously no expert, so I'm just sharing with you some thoughts I have here and, and how I try to process these things. But I do think that taking that step to just to just, I don't know, to just be okay with who you are now and like, hey, that's all right. I can take another step forward though. That is something that helps me. It helps me to grow. Um, I don't think that, at least I, I don't think I can have progress, whether it be as a hunter or anywhere else in my life, if I'm constantly living in fear of not being perfect or beating myself up about not being good enough. And I'm telling you, I struggle with those things, but um, it's something I'm trying to get better at. And so, 
you know, you are good enough. I'm good enough, but we can get better too. And, and I think that's why, you know, I'm so excited about these topics because hunting is this, this, for so many reasons, we love hunting, but it, and I said this before, hunting serves as this canvas or as this, uh, I don't know what the way you describe it is, but hunting is this model of how we can take on a mission and try to get better and work towards a challenge. And, and that's something I really love about it. It, it helps me grow. Not only do I love the actual act of it, I love getting great meat and I love being outside with my family and friends, but it also is this thing that's kind of like a big piece of granite that I have to keep on chipping away at, chipping away at, chipping away at. And slowly but surely I start seeing that there's something there. There's a statue. There's a, there's maybe, maybe someday there's a work of art, but I got to keep chipping. I got to keep chipping. And while I know that's a lot of work, it's also something, it's, it's, it's a process that brings me fulfillment. And, uh, and I don't know. Maybe I'm rambling. Maybe this is all too deep. Maybe you just want to hear about hunting. But if you have found any of the things we talked about the past few weeks, I hope you'll stick around for more. Um, I certainly am planning on doing that myself. So, Without any other rambling and talking in circles, I think we should take a quick break to thank a partner of ours, and then we will head to Deer Camp to chat with my buddy Furter and my dad, David Kenyon. All right, so first, want to thank our friends at Vortex Optics. As I've been mentioning over the last handful of weeks, I've been using a number of the different products over the last year now, and right about now, it's June, I'm going to be busting out the spotting scope to start doing some of my long-distance observation for whitetails out in these bean fields that are just starting to come up. This is one of my favorite things to do last year. Um, there's a bean field across the road from my house, and you see lots of deer out there. And so last year, I got the Vortex Viper HD spotting scope, and I set it up on my front porch, and I got a phone scope for it. So you can attach your phone to the spotting scope and then see through it and record through it. And it was just so much fun to have a spotting scope set up there to be able to see these bucks up close, to get a little bit of cell phone video. Um, just a lot of fun, not to mention if you've got somewhere you can hunt where you can do this kind of thing, scout from a long distance, you can learn a lot too, especially in the summer, at least getting an inventory of the bucks available, man, a high quality spotting scope is a great tool. I had great results with the Viper HD. And then I also used the Razor HD on my Mexican coos deer hunt and really enjoyed using that scope as well. So definitely think those are options worth checking out and you can learn more at vortexoptics.com. All right. We are here at deer camp. It's May, very late in May, last day of May, I think. And um, I'm here with my dad and Fur. And we got up here last night and we're here today to meet with a forester. The goal being to better understand a little bit about what we might be able to do from a forestry standpoint. And we can get into this in more detail later, but basically to learn a little bit about what our options are out here with logging and doing some different habitat things related to timber. So that's why we're here. And because that's kind of like the topic of conversation for us naturally this weekend, I thought it would make sense to maybe take a look at what we have kind of what it used to be like up here at Deer Camp over the last 30 years from a habitat standpoint, talk about what's changed, what happened, and then what we've been trying to do the last handful of years to improve things, and then maybe a little bit about some of our ideas and dreams for the future. So, Dad, are you up for talking about that? You bet. Further? 
Yep. Sounds good. So where I'm sitting right now, I'm sitting in this leather chair in the corner of the cabin, right? I got the wood burning stove to my right. Usually whenever we record a podcast up here, this is where we're sitting. We're by the fire, the crackle and pop of the fire. So many great memories about sitting in here, but usually it wasn't me that used to sit in this chair I'm in. <laughs> For many years, it was my grandpa, and then before that, it was his buddy, Jerry. And Jerry always used to sit here in this in this chair, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dad, but as I remember it, he would sit here in this chair, and you can see out the one kind of big window in the cabin that looks out to the east. And that used to be a big, wide-open field. And that field used to have deer moving across it relatively often. And they would always joke that they'd have the gun sitting next to the cabin, right? And then one of these years, maybe they'd be able to grab the gun, step out, and, and actually get a deer just outside the cabin. Did that ever happen, Dad? Uh, never. Well, that's not true. Uh, yeah, it actually did happen one time where Jerry saw a deer moving across a big buck. They snuck out of the cabin, grabbed the rifle. As, but unfortunately, by the time he got around the side of the cabin, the deer had moved beyond uh, the point where he could get a shot. But yeah, that was the that was the big joke. There were uh, there were times we thought that you know if it was a big enough deer, we'd just shoot right through the screen of the window. <laughs> <laughs> we can repair that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so I th- I bring that up because what used to be this big wide open field where we used to see all sorts of deer now, now it is a thick young forest. You can't see more than, I mean. 30, 40 yards into it now, if you were standing on the edge of our yard looking into there. I mean, yeah, you can see a little bit, but it's it's thick. You can't see nearly as far as it used to. You used to be able to see hundreds of yards across this thing. Now it's all new pine shoots and maple shoots, trees and stuff, and all overgrown. It's changed drastically just in the time I've been coming up here. Yeah, in the last like five years has yeah. changed. And so that's kind of the story of what's happened here is there's been a lot of habitat change over the last 30 years since we bought this place. Uh-huh. Um, so, Dad, can you describe what our 40 acres was like in the surrounding area, maybe a little bit, um, when we first, you guys first started coming up here back in the, I guess, late 80s? Yeah, so when we came up here in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, that sort of thing, you know, the the uh, the property still had a lot of uh, timber on it. We had a, a big pine stand that the cabin is uh, kind of embedded in, uh, maybe five acres, maybe a little bit more than that, that was planted back in the 50s. And uh, so that had matured to some point. Um, but even, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, you know, that was a big timber stand that you could look through. Out to the east, as you described, Mark, you could look almost entirely across what was at that time virtually an open field, all the way maybe two, three hundred yards to a stream, and you'd see the deer walk along the uh, the edge of the stream in particular. We had a number of uh, birch and other trees that you'd see there, but again, pretty wide open. To the south, just on the other side of that big pine stand that I mentioned, was another open field. And um, and at that time, again, we had some small, uh, very small uh, uh, pines and others that were coming up. But for the most part, it was completely open. And again, three, four hundred yards across that was another line of timber where it got a little bit uh, lower level. And again, the stream as it wound around to the south side of our property. And the other side of the stream, which is also our property, was another open field. And uh, a lot of browsing, a lot of, you know, a few trees that were scattered in that open field. But, uh, you know, GP, my dad, uh, had a number of blinds set up in that area. And, and, um, you know, during hunting season, he would, that's 
typically where he would hunt because there'd be four, five, six deer at a time just wandering through that uh, that uh, field close to dark. And he brought home a number of deer uh, from that stand. So, um, you know, to the west of our property has always been that, you know, part of that pine stand that I talked about before gets um, quite low, very swampy. And then as the river or the stream continues to wind around to the west, again, you'd run into the stream at some point. To the north is state land, and that's uh, mostly timber. And uh, But, you know, it has changed a, a dramatic amount over the years. Yeah, and I think it's uh, it should be pointed out that those couple fields you described were the only openings for a long ways, unless you kept going east. Along the road, there's a, there a few, but otherwise, if you head west, north, or south, it is all pure timber or swamp, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's lots of cedars and hemlocks, and then you get into the really wet stuff, and it's like tag alders and cattails, all sorts of stuff. But cover. I mean, it's just cover. Timber, cover, thick. And now you, I guess if you go farther uh, west, you'd eventually get to places where there's been some logging on some of this public land. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was all going on, you know, 30, 20 years ago, several decades ago. Now, over the last 25 years or so, we've seen each of those fields you described has completely overgrown. And the fields on the neighboring properties have mostly all overgrown. So now we have, other than there's one neighbor that has just a grass field, everything else is all cover and timber. There aren't any fields anymore. There's no real early successional habitat. There's no real fields or great food sources in that way. So right now the deer, other than some things we've been trying to add to the mix, um, you know, nipping and feeding here and there and browsing on, on, on just little bits of scattered native vegetation as they go along, right? Um, so how have you seen the deer activity in sightings and stuff change over that 25-year period mm-hmm. as, though, as those fields have grown up, as our habitats change around here? It's all matured, right? Yeah. What did you see? What's, what's the, I mean, I know the answer, but describe to us what we've seen. Well, certainly we've seen a pretty dramatic change in both the deer population and their movement throughout the property. 30 years ago, when we first, uh, you know, purchased the property and started hunting here and, and set our stands up because of the number of uh, uh, forage areas and, and fields and areas where there was a lot of browsing for the deer. Um, we had a lot of deer in this area and uh, uh, there was a destination for the deer to come and stay and move through this area. And the size of the deer and the, the number of deer was, uh, much, much, was much greater. And then about uh, 15, 20 years ago, that started to change. And some of that, I think, is correlated to what you just described, Mark. You know, the, the habitat has changed significantly. Um, and over the course of, uh, you know, the last 10 years in particular, the, um, the frequency and the number of deer, especially big, you know, mature deer, they're there. You know, all of that area you talked about, we have 8,000 acres of, of land that we're adjacent to that's a deep swamp, deep forest. You know, there's certainly plenty of cover, plenty of places for the, you know, big mature bucks and, and doe to, to live. But there's really no reason for them to move through our property. And uh, so I, I think that's one of the primary ways that things have changed up until recently when we started doing some of the work that we've done around the property. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't know if you guys remember, but I feel like in the past couple of podcasts we've done up here, I don't think we've ever dove deep into what we've been trying to do. Have we? No, I don't think much at all. I no. don't think so. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, 
like you just said, we've seen like our deer hunting and we've, we've talked about this, the sightings, the actual success, the bucks on the pole have gone down dramatically over the last 20 years. I mean, I feel like uh-huh. the heyday was like the late nineties. Yeah. Mid yeah. to late nineties was like the heyday. So as right. soon as I started coming up here consistently, it went dramatically yeah. downhill. Yeah. I mean, we would, it was not uncommon for us to have three nice big bucks on the pole. Mm-hmm. That was not uncommon. Yeah, I always talk about that. I think it was 1997 was the year I remember so well when we had two big, really big seven-pointer and the really big yeah. eight-pointer. You were 10 years old. No, well, I guess, yes, you're right. I would have been 10 <laughs> years old. Um, is 97 right? Is yeah. That, let's see. Yeah. What the, you were born in 87. Is that 97? <laughs> I'm trying to look at the wall here. It says 95, actually. On yeah. The, so yeah. maybe I'm wrong. So maybe it was 95. Yeah, if you're listeners, we have one entire wall of our cabin that's full of uh, uh, antlers from, you know, over the course of the last 20, 30 years. And I think we did talk about that in our podcast over the uh, our hunting uh, trip. Um, unfortunately, we had a break in maybe 25 years ago where a large number of the biggest racks were, were stolen. But uh, the entire wall is covered with antlers. Unfortunately, the vast majority of those were taken 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so so 95 was when we last killed like a nice buck up here, a somewhat mature buck. Three or older was 1995. Mm-hmm. So that's a long time ago. Um, since then, it's been like a steady de- decline. Now, I don't know, probably when I was in college, maybe, mm-hmm. I think, I started trying to encourage the family, like, maybe we should do some habitat work. Maybe we can try to do some things to fix stuff up. So I have to interject something here. So my, my dad, GP, as we refer to him, um, so he's uh, he loves Ken Rovin, uh, the, the, the in our camp. He loves the area. Um, and But he he was not a real big fan of some of the things that Mark was talking about. So when Mark started, uh, you know, talking about making some food plots or, or clearing some of the land, uh, you know, Grandpa was extremely reluctant, right? And so Mark would try to find creative ways to still, you know, not upset Grandpa to, tra- to start, you know, planting <laughs> his food plot. One of those was we had an ATV and we had some ATV trails through some of the area. And, you know, Mark would say, well, hey, can we, can we, can we plant in the, in the ATV tracks and between the tracks? And, you know, that won't hurt anything, Grandpa. <laughs> And Grandpa sort of conceded, but, you know, uh, yeah, you, you've been working at that for a long time. Yeah, so, so yeah, GP was very reluctant to do stuff like that. He was really big on planting trees. He did not like the idea of removing trees. That's the reason we have two big forests. Which is why, yeah, cap, which yeah. is why our fields are gone and they're now all, it was interesting, today we heard a little bit about how some of the trees that Grandpa planted now are like big trees, mm-hmm. um, maybe not the best trees to have planted, but at the time, I mean, it was really well-intentioned, and he was up here just trying mm-hmm. to be a steward of the land. And well, I always Grandpa thought that was, was a cool. a big fan of blue spruces, so yeah. we have blue spruces everywhere. And one of the things we heard from the forester today is they aren't native to Michigan, and they really aren't the best tree for you to plant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is, it is kind of wild. If you, if you look out there how big those trees are now, mm-hmm. and you can look on our, on our door. We have this door full of pictures, and there's a picture of GP planting those trees. You know, and that field is wide open. He's planting these little tiny seedlings, little yeah. saplings, yeah, ten inches tall or something. And that was I like that was in the nineties. It was so oh, in yeah. twenty some years, twenty five yeah. years, thirty years. I mean, he grew a forest almost. Which is, well, we buy two, three hundred trees at a time. Believe me, I was out there shoveling and <laughs> planting, you know, for hours. He even brought grandma out there. I mean, oh yeah, right? oh yeah, yeah. So 
so I feel a little bit bad that I'm now trying to undo his work. <laughs> but I think, I hope he knows that our intentions are are good. Because, uh, because yeah, so as you mentioned, he was a little reluctant about some of these things. And I understand. Um, but uh, you're right. We I tried to plant the food plot uh, along the ATV trail. He, I got approval. I started, I sprayed to try to kill some of the ferns to plant. And I think before I was able to plant, though, he came back and was like, no, I don't want you to do it. Um, so, so that was all right. You know, I, um, that was fine, but I also know that something grandpa always cared a lot about and something he always wanted was for, you know, for the wildlife to flourish up here Mm -hmm. and for us and for his family and friends to come up here and enjoy it and spend time here. And so I think what we saw over the last 25 years was a slow decline in how much people want to come up here because people, we weren't seeing deer anymore. So different members of our camp slowly stopped coming up. Um, we stopped coming up as much because it's, you've got limited time, limited time to hunt. If you're going to come up and spend a couple of days of hunt and you're like, well, I could go somewhere down south and I could see two dozen deer and I've got a great chance of shooting something or I could go up to the cabin and I, I won't see a deer at all. Um, you know, it becomes harder to justify that from like a hunting standpoint, at least. Mm-hmm. So eventually we started saying, hey, we got to try to turn this ship around. We need to try to revive this or restore what was once a, a, a re- Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. Really, a really uh, robust place as far as the amount of animal life you would see, and now we just weren't seeing it. So 
maybe six, seven years ago. How long ago do you think it was that, that we actually started making changes? Six years? Yeah, yeah, I don't think it was that long ago. I think it was more like maybe five, five years ago when we started cutting the first food plot. Yeah, so five or six years ago. And, um, and, and again, I bring up the fact that I think Grandpa would be okay with that because at that point, you know, he wasn't around, but we, I think the things we have done have been with, um, like his, his legacy hangs over this place so much, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because this was his place that he built, not literally built the, the cabin, but built what this place means. And, um, I think we've tried to make changes in the spirit of what he would have wanted. Well, in fact, that very first food plot that we did was exactly in that same field that Grandpa used to sit in, um, you know, late nights during deer season and shot many of his deer. Yeah. So, and that had turned into a a young forest. Mm -hmm. So we essentially restored that to to a food plot, you know, to a grazing and a browsing area. So I agree with you, Mark. All right, I want to take another quick break to thank our partners at First Light for their support of this podcast and want to let you know about a product of theirs I've been testing just over the past, I don't know, half year or so, which is their new Sawbuck Brush Pant. This is a, it's kind of like a hybrid pant. Half of the pant is like a light, stretchy, really comfortable, breathable fabric that comes from, that's very similar to the Corrugate Guide Pant. Um... And the other half, though, is what's interesting is it's like a really heavy double nylon type panel, like canvas pant that you would see for maybe bird hunting or working through the brush. Well, this pant has those panels in the front. And what I wasn't sure about would would the soft, stretchy stuff on the back get ripped up in thorns and brush, or could the pant handle, you know, shed hunting or working out in the summer scouting and doing things like that? And I was pleasantly surprised to find I used it all this past spring shed hunting and now I'm using it on these scouting trips in the summer and different habitat work and stuff. They're holding up really well. They're very comfortable but tough. So uh thinking the Sawbuck brush pant is gonna be a great all-around whitetail off-season project pant. I'd highly recommend checking that one out. And you can learn about it at firstlight.com. Yeah, so so let's talk about what we've done so far because we decided we want to try to do something. Our, we, we looked at what's available, like where are the what are the weak spots? The way I kind of started this process is is what do we have a lot of, what don't we have, where are we missing things? And as we just discussed, what we used to have was a lot of openings, a lot of edge, a lot of food. We do not have that anymore. Now we have almost a monoculture, not a monoculture because it's a lot of different things, but we have just cover everywhere almost on on the property as of like five, six years ago. So the first idea was, okay, we need to try to make some openings that we could hopefully plant food plots in. So the first year we just went out there, the first spot we we located, we tried to pick a couple of places that had relatively smaller number of trees you'd have to remove to get some kind of clearing and relatively younger trees that would be easily cut out, right? And that happened to be in that old field that used to be GP's spot where he killed that great big seven-pointer that I just looked at on the wall in 1995. Uh Um, So I remember the first year, all we managed to do was cut an opening. Like we went out with chainsaws and spent a couple days, handful of days, cutting. And that was hard work. You nearly had a heart attack. (laughs) A couple times. (laughs) I just remember seeing you all red and sweaty. Jesus, I don't know. 
I need to sit down. Do you have any water? Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> Mark. Glad I missed out on that. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, Josh, oh, yeah. Josh has conveniently missed all of our work projects uh, yeah. on the food lot so far. Um, but we're, we're trying to change that now. <laughs> Got you up here today. Yep. At least. Um, so first year was just getting that open. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that in itself is like a powerful thing because not only do we have a lack of openings for food, but we also have a lack of openings just as sight lines. Like you can't hardly see more than 40 right. yards anywhere right. in our property. Right. So half of our problem, maybe not half, but a little bit of our problem that we don't see many deer is simply that you just can't see them because yeah. Yeah, they're visually blind. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, I'm not sure many people can appreciate just how thick our woods and our, our swamps are here. I mean, it really is the case that, um, you know, you, you almost don't want to bring a rifle because, frankly, they're, wa- they're wasted. <laughs> you can use a slingshot. And yeah. Well, and to that point, I went on, a, this would have been two years ago now, I went on a walk back into the swamp and, and saw that old uh, GP's old stand back here. Mm-hmm. The old box blind that was in the swamp. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can see more than 10 or 15 yards. Oh, I mean, yeah. Just so thick oh, yeah. back there and everything. Yep. Yeah, you couldn't see anything. And I never knew anything different. Like that, growing up, I just thought that was the norm. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it makes things challenging. So having some sight lines is certainly a nice thing too. And lots of times growing up, that would be what would determine where I would hunt. When I'm walking around back in the day, it wasn't like for any type of reason that I thought deer would be traveling. It was like, hey, just find a place where you can see a little bit mm-hmm. and that'd be where you sit. Yep. Um, so now the idea has been let's create a few places like that. So that first year we just cut and it probably wouldn't, we, we weren't able to open up more than, I don't know, a quarter acre. But we got a quarter acre opened, just chainsawing stuff down low, pulled all the tree tops out. And there's a lot to clear out, like yeah. a ton of small trees all bunched in these fields now. So that was the first year. And um, we got it open. We didn't get to plant anything, but we at least got something open. And that was progress. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if we started trying to put lime down or not, but I think we took soil tests that first year. I think we did, and I did think we, because you know our, that soil was so acidic. Yeah, the soil test came back that I think we did. I, as I recall, it was fifteen hundred pounds of lime that we brought in that first year. And um, the other thing we did not do because we didn't have the right equipment is we couldn't destump. Right, we couldn't pull the stumps of most of those trees we cut. Yep. So we cut them down. We cleared what we could because it was full of you know uh, underbrush and and everything else. Um, put down the lime and at least started the process of changing the the soil acidity. Yeah. So to this point, we've de- we did everything with nothing but chainsaws and then just bringing in bags of lime. No tractors, no equipment at all. Yeah. Um, so the first year, yeah, just put a bunch of lime out because, like you said, super acidic. We knew that was gonna be a challenge. Like in a lot of areas, even where there are some sunlight coming in, mostly all that grows is bracken ferns. There's not a whole lot of other really positive stuff growing in many places. So I knew that that'd be a challenge to getting some kind of food plot growing would be improving the soil. So that led us to the second year. That second year, we added lime again, and we tried to widen the open by a little bit. Not Mm -hmm. a lot, but we tried Mm -hmm. to expand it a little bit, Mm -hmm. and then tried planting for the first time. And uh, if I remember correctly, we brought in a four-wheeler, with mm-hmm. my little groundhog disc on it and try to mm-hmm. disc around the stumps and stuff. <laughs> so the first year we disced around stumps. So I think I think we came in, sprayed once in the early spring, came back in the late summer. There's lots of ferns grown again, sprayed yeah. those ferns again, then ran around with the disc behind the four-wheeler to break stuff up a, up a little bit yeah. and planted some oats. Yep. And 
and then fertilize lime, et cetera. But, you know, a little bit of color to that. I mean, that, that soil was so dense because of all the root systems and all of the, you know, the mat that had been created. I remember we had a really hard time disking that. Yeah. I mean, that was a big challenge yeah. that first year. Yep. And it's like, and it's really just not great soil either. Yeah. Lots of pine needles. I remember and, talking yeah. to you after you guys did that that weekend. It's like, how did it go? He's like, ugh. It's like <laughs> the classic yeah. uh, frustrated Mark. Oh, yeah. Is that a thing? Classic oh, frustrated yeah. Mark? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hear that from you a lot. So, so Mark, that second year, I don't recall, was that the year that we expanded the food plot over to the, the second side of the barbell? No. So f- this was just the this is the first day or the first year we actually had something planted was mm-hmm. just food plot one at that point. Right. And so just food plot one was oats and we came so we came back in September or October like holy smoke something actually took yeah we planned the oats and the oats came in and it was actually really nice we were really excited about that that was yeah it was very (laughs) exciting we had like a a decently you know there was it was patchy but Mm -hmm. we had something that was growing that deer would eat for the first time ever we planted something the deer would eat and we had trail cameras running and lo and behold there were deer coming to it Mm -hmm. and we for the first time ever got a mature buck on trail camera too so how how exciting was that when we checked those cameras, Dad? And you, I remember this because we must have checked those cameras for the first time during gun season. Because on the same day we came in, I go to hunt the food plot for the first time. And I think we've told the story again, but I'll briefly mention it again just for those who haven't heard it. We come in opening day. I go to hunt the food plot for the first time. It's very exciting. I go, I get set up. I brought in, I didn't have a tree stand set up. So I was bringing like a mobile, mobile. No, I brought in my climber. So I shimmy up the tree and you meanwhile are going to your old trusty location. You have this box blind that's about 20 yards away from the cabin. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 30. The the whole staple gun experience. Yeah. This is the staple gun story. But for those that don't know, it's really great. Um, so, shot a deer there. so it's about maybe 150 yards from the cabin or 100 <laughs> yards from the cabin, something like that. And, and yeah, so you went out there mm-hmm. you got to the ground. Do you want to tell the story? Or no, no, no go ahead. Cause I like to embellish it. You know? Yes, you do. Uh, so well. <laughs> so, so real quickly, you walk out to the blind hundred yards away, you mm-hmm. get into it, mm-hmm. you're rummaging around, you get settled in and you notice that a little bit of the carpeting on the blind. Cause that's how we do our blinds up here. Which right. With, uh, what is it? Indoor outdoor indoor, carpeting. Outdoor, <laughs> yeah, carpeting. <laughs> hey, we, we spared no expense. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was flapping around. You didn't like that. So you walked back to the cabin. You got a staple gun. You walked back to the blind. You started stapling <laughs> carpeting to the side of your blind. Um, and lo and behold, a deer arrives. Now I am just getting to the top of my tree. I'm just getting settled and I'm pulling up my firearm. Um, and all of a sudden, it's like 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And boom. A gun goes off like real close to me, about crap my pants. And I thought, there's no way that's anybody but my dad. It was right here. My dad just accidentally shot himself. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I am really offended. You know, the first thing that you thought, you didn't think that your dad shot a deer, you assumed he shot himself. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what I thought. <laughs> well, that might go to that might speak to the fact that we haven't been seeing. Yeah, I mean, that was, yeah. Good point. 
<laughs> it was exactly that. So we, had, we like, I mean, you haven't shot one up here in a very long time. No, no one has shot one up here in a very long time. Yeah. And so, yes, you, a buck actually miraculously came by. You shot the buck. It was awesome. But um, that led to the first hunt or the food plot being a very short one because I shimmied down the tree after five minutes and came over here. <laughs> um, but what's cool is we came back into the cabin, checked the cameras, and not only had you killed a buck that night, but there were two different mature bucks on trail camera mm-hmm. for the first time ever. Yeah, that one in particular, Mark, describe that. Well, there was, and it might actually have been three mature bucks. Now I take it back because there was, mm-hmm. we got a picture of a buck in the summer, a velvet buck that was really wide, really big, impressive wide yeah. buck. It was the only time we saw him, but that was cool. And then there was a buck that came by several times in October and into November. They had a drop time. And then there was another nice big body day point or two. All of that first year with a food plot and we actually seen and never before were we seeing mature bucks like this now there hadn't been a buck of the caliber of these three deer at least that ever been seen since 1995 yeah and now we get a little quarter acre third acre food plot in and we're getting pictures of these deer in that food plot so that was like i remember you and me were in here like high and woohoo way to go <laughs> like how cool is this like we we put in all it was this worth work almost having a heart attack yeah <laughs> like that was a really big step like it was a small thing we did but right away saw results mm-hmm. and and i don't know that was just like a really exciting inflection point in like Hey, we can do something here. We can like Ken Rovin can come back. We can change like the narrative because for a long time the narrative was always kind of negative, right? And and it wasn't just like we were feeling negative. We also had our wives. I was going to say <laughs> the negative narrative came from our wives particularly. Mm-hmm. You don't want to go hunting there. There's no deer. There. I can't tell you anything. how many times I've heard. Yeah. Why are yeah. you even going up there? What are you even doing? Why are you going? <laughs> I'm like, guys, come on. This place means so much to us. You don't you don't get it. So yeah, constantly dealing with that. Um, but so that was year one. We got mm-hmm. that planted, saw results. Year t- three was, I think, the year where we expanded it into the barbell mm-hmm. shape, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to describe that? Yeah. So food plot one, as we call it, is the first food plot that we created. And that's maybe, as Mark said, probably a quarter acre or so. There was kind of a natural connector from that to the second food plot that we identified, which was a little bit further east. Um, it was a, a wetter area, not as big a space where we could easily cut out, maybe a little less than a quarter acre, but uh, but, a, but a, you know, a nice potential area we could do. And we assumed that we could also leverage that connecting component to turn into a, you know, a, an additional portion of that, uh, that food plot. So um, it was a little bit easier... Um, to take out the, the small brush and that sort of thing. But there were some pretty good-sized stumps that had to be taken out. Um, our neighbor has a tractor. He came in and did some initial clearing for us. Uh, that that helped, but it left a, a really big mess because he really didn't pull out the, the trunks of, of a lot of the roots. So I had a friend who's a landscaper. Um, he agreed to come up with his bigger tractor, a Kubota, and you know, big enough to be able to pull things out. And he spent a day not only taking care of food plot two, but also coming back to food plot one and helping us remove all those trunks and the big roots and so on and so forth. So there was a pretty significant improvement to both food plots and that that connector in between. So I don't know how much how much food plot area we have between the two. Maybe a half an acre, maybe a little bit uh, more if you include the connector. But uh, but there was a nice dense space. Between 
between both of them. Both of them kind of sit, uh, um, are adjacent to the stream, and there's a nice uh, timber that uh, deer move through and across the stream to both food pots. And then we have a um, 10 acres, 8 acres of hemlock on the south side of both of those food plots. That is a significant yarding space that the deer like. Yeah, and that was, that was yeah, like you said, we improved the size of it. Um, and the, probably the biggest thing was getting rid of the stumps, though. It mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. helped and just leveled out. It just made the area much easier to work with. Yeah. And we, again, planted oats and some buckwheat, I think, right. that year. Yep. And, again, saw deer moving pretty consistently in and out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember hunting over it. And uh, now I'm not going to remember exactly here, but I do remember from the first year I hunted it after you killed your deer, mm-hmm. I went back and I saw a decent buck. It ran through really quickly. And so every year now since I've hunted it, maybe not this past year, but I've seen bucks in or around it. Mm-hmm. And I had only seen like two bucks or three bucks in all of my years hunting here ever from, you know, from the time I remember, probably 94 up through 2000, whenever this was, 2012. So are you including the three deer that we saw over in the north when you and when you were like nine years old and you told me that... You wanted the guns so you can shoot them? Yeah, well, I remember that. That was one buck. That was one buck that you couldn't see, but I could see, and I wanted the gun. So that's one buck. I remember another buck I saw when I was old enough to hunt by myself. I was hunting maybe just a couple hundred yards from that spot, mm-hmm. and I had a buck run through. So that was buck number two. And then the third buck I ever saw was in 2007 when I killed that eight-pointer or seven-pointer or whatever that was up here. So those are the three bucks I had ever seen at our deer camp from 94 to 2007. And then we had our food plots that we put in here, I don't know what it was, 2013 or something, would have been the first year. And then I started seeing a buck or two, multiple bucks Mm -hmm. every year after that Mm -hmm. point. So again, really positive results. On the trail camera that year, we saw, I think it was one mature buck that we Mm -hmm. had on camera that year, Mm -hmm. but still cool to have it was a nine pointer i think um and i think josh there was one day where i was sitting there and saw this eight pointer run through and i think you saw him about a couple hundred yards away too right yeah yep because you you've hunt oftentimes i'll be hunting close to the food plot there's this big chunk of timber that dad described and you've been hunting recently a lot over on that side yep. a lot of deer kind of transition through there yeah. towards the yep. plots it seems yep. like right i try to pick them off before they get to you i've noticed that <laughs> yeah <laughs> You know what, just another comment real quickly. One is uh, um, not only we're seeing deer in the food plots, but we're seeing many other animals. So we're, we're seeing a lot of bear. Remember those first few years in particular, we almost saw more bear than we saw deer. On camera. Uh, that was, yeah. On camera, yeah, on camera. But we're also seeing coyote. We saw, we've seen some bobcat. We've seen uh, a lot of turkeys. I mean, it's just changed the, the habitat, I think, not just for deer, but for our entire yeah. the entire ecosystem. Yeah, and it's... It's probably less than a half acre. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, not. it's not a big thing. Mm-hmm. It's a small space, mm-hmm. and just that little bit made a big difference. Yeah. And another thing to point out is that we, we mentioned in the beginning how acidic the soil was. Mm-hmm. So every year we've been adding lime, and it's been getting better and better to the point then last year, or all no, that year, we, we, we again planted things that we thought would handle that acidic. So we, we were trying to plant things that could handle it in tough conditions so it was oats it was buckwheat stuff like that then um i guess it would take us to then last year then because i think that last year was the third year of stuff being planted 
and we came in again, and I think we tried to do a little bit more cutting. Like Every year we do a little more cutting, expand it just a little bit. Not much, but just a little bit to get more sunlight in. Um, limed it again, fertilized it again, and in the August, came back in, disked it, planted. And this year I thought, hey, we try a, a blend of things, see what might come in. So I planted oats again, but there was also some brassicas mixed in there, and there was also some clover mixed in there. So for the first time ever, we were going to see could brassicas and clover make it in this acidic soil. And the plots came in pretty darn good again last year, right? I mean, I thought they, they looked pretty good. really well. Um, I, I don't remember if I saw a buck while hunting, um, but you saw a good one. Yeah, I saw that good one. I'm, I'm sure he was coming from the food plot. Right, it wasn't too far away yep. from there. So even though we, we might not actually be seeing deer on it, I do think that it's 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 like a it's one of those focal points is pulling deer through the property. Yeah, how they're using the property for sure. Yeah, and we got some some didn't have any like big big mature shooters on camera last year, but a lot of deer still consistently using. At a minimum, there's at least one doe family group that is consistently there all the time in that area, and I think that's just. Uh, that's helped us tremendously during the rut because now there's a reason that bucks are going to consistently pass through our property now because there's something to keep these does there versus, you know, probably in a lot of these deer just range a very large territory because there's no great concentration of food anywhere. So they just kind of nip and pick their way across huge swaths of country. Here we're able to focus things a little bit more. So again, we only have like a half acre maybe of food. Yeah, last year though it came in pretty nice and we had a little bit more diverse blend of stuff we had some brassicas that came up we had a lot of oats that came up um a little bit of buckwheat that came up um at that point it was mostly what you were seeing and um lots of bears coming on camera and then like i talked about last year on the podcast i had that night where um i had a black bear come right underneath my stand for the first time which was pretty cool um so that was quite a hunt Say, Mark, one thing I want to mention is we actually have a third food plot, too, but it's really close to the cabin. That's maybe another eighth of an acre, maybe a little bit bigger than that. Um, but we, we've done well there in terms of the food that uh, that's come up there as well. And I don't know if you think that's really changed or helped at all in, in you know, keeping the deer in the area. But, but, you know, so we have three total. Yeah, I always kind of look at that. It's, it's pretty negligible what it is right now. It's, it's kind of just a little patch, but it's something. Um, and yeah, I mean, that is another thing that just added to the sum total of food that we have gives us just a little bit more. So, so yeah, that's, that's what we've done to this point, right? We, we have created little food plot openings. We've um, talked about a number of different things, but something really encouraging that we just saw, we got here today, we've started talking about things we want to do with a little bit of a, from the forestry standpoint. So this is the first time I've been back to the cabin since last winter. And we went over to the food plot area, and I was kind of expecting, all right, we're going to have to do what we do every year, which is replant. You know, we got annuals we're replanting every summer. Well, before you say that, first thing we have to do is get rid of the ferns. So usually we have to spray and spray a couple of times because they grow so, I mean, usually they're just, they're everywhere. They're carpet of ferns. Yep, get a bunch of ferns. Yeah. And so we get out there and I'm like, man, look at all this green. And I get closer and it's clover. And it is a lot of clover. And so as part of our mix last year, there was some clover in there. I kind of really didn't have high hope. I wasn't even thinking that we would get it to come back. Not much at all that I could see came up last fall. Um 
but holy smokes, it came in beautifully this spring. So we basically have a perennial clover plot going on right now that just needs to be maintained. We don't need to replant a whole new food plot this summer, which is really nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Like I, I'm shocked. I'm, I'm, it's, it looked really good back there. It looked there. really yeah, good. good. I, so that right there is like, that's the product of what we've been doing to try to improve the soil. There was never, never would you have that growing in that stuff beforehand. So that is that is really encouraging. So we've had a nice lush food source all spring now for the deer here. And we just pulled trail camera cards and saw that the deer have been using it a bunch. They've been enjoying that all spring now. Um, and now it's going to continue through the summer. So all we need to do is manage it. So I think we need to mow it one time here in the summer. And then uh, when we get closer to the end of summer, I think we'll do a one-time pass with a grass-selective herbicide. So just there are some grasses growing it in some places really thick. So just knock back the grass once, and then we're just going to nurture that clover. So fertilize it, um, maybe do a top seeding. So go over it. Hopefully we can come up here once before rain and broadcast some more clover, maybe some other annuals to just fill in the gaps. We'll I'll run some oats or cereal or rye or something maybe some brassica seeds that we'll easily take just by broadcasting on top of everything with a rain coming the next day and that'll fill the gaps and we'll have this great food plot of mostly perennial clover and then some of these other annuals filling in the gaps and then next year we'll get the clover will be back and it'll probably be even thicker and more less patchy um and then we'll just continue nurturing that and that's i mean that makes things a lot easier for us plus clover is one of the best possible options you can have out there because it's going to attract deer and feed deer with a high protein, really attractive, um, really attractive forage from like March or April right through the winter. You know, I mean, they're going to, it won't be quite as attractive in December or super duper cold, but lots of times I still still see them hitting it right through. Um, so that is just like, I'm blown away. I was not expecting that. I think we were all pretty excited to see it. Yeah, we were. Yep. Yep. So that's the food plot game. But the thing is, is that it's really hard to carve in food plots. And even though we're seeing some nice results with our little half acre of food, it's still relatively minimal. And there's still like only, you know, one or two people can be hunting around that. It is making a difference, but it's, there's so much more I feel like we could be doing. And we could really turn things around if we could create some more openings, some more diversity in the habitat, some more edge some more food to just draw more deer into the area because right now there's a very scattered herd, but there are deer. But if we create a more concentrated, high-quality food source, it would just be that much better. So I've started, like, we started talking, I think it was last year maybe, Dad, that we started talking about this. Mm -hmm. The idea of, like, hey, maybe we can get some of this timber cut out and plant some bigger food plots, maybe in the center of some of this timber. Maybe we can pull out some timber, um, cut some stuff, create more openings, create more food plots, things along those lines, and spread them out so we can hunt over a larger area, so we can pull deer from a wider area, so there's more things going on. Um, but the question was, like, how do we do that? How, like, we don't really have the means to go and clear an acre or two acres of, like, big mature timber or the time. Um, so we started wondering, like, maybe could we find someone that would come in here? Could we, could we do it in such a way that a logging company would come in and, you know, maybe it would be cost neutral. We would get the trees taken out the way we wanted them to, and then they'd get the lumber and maybe that'd be like even exchange, or maybe we could find a way that's not too crazy expensive. Um, so I ran that past you, dad and, and you and, and you know, your brother, you guys were on board with that, right? Seemed yep. like a, a good yep. idea. Yep. Um, 
And so the next step was then trying to find, like, how do you find someone to do that? Who do you talk to? And I remember I talked to you, Josh, to see if you happen mm-hmm. to know anyone through your QDMA connections as far as, like, we, we want a forester to come in. Because yep. basically the first step from what I understood is get a, get a consulting forester or a state forester to come out and, and figure out what's, what do you have, what's available, what might be marketable, and, you know, if there's something there, then they can connect you with a either another forester who can sign and set up contracts or connect you directly to a logging company to then do those things. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle. Heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. So over the last handful of months, I've been calling a bunch of different foresters trying to find someone that could do this. Had two other people I talked to but just couldn't end up getting them out here. What ended up being a little bit of a challenge was that we have a small, it's a small property, it's a small amount of area where you can actually take timber out of, it's right, 40 acres, of which at least half of that is wet ground without any really decent timber in there at all, it's just thick, nasty alders and stuff. Um, so finally I was able to get in touch with a state forester who, this is their job to come out and do these things, they do it for free, like so we didn't have to pay a consulting fee or anything, but their job is to come out and connect you with you know, other foresters or logging companies that might be able to do the job that you have. So that's why we came here today. We came here to meet that forester, and he was going to walk the property with us and tell us what we saw or tell us what was going on here and what might be possible. Um, I don't know, do either one of you guys want to walk? What, what did you think, Dad? Walk me through what you experienced and what your thoughts were. 
Well, so we walked the property. Um, Josh uh, was the well, the forester that we worked with. Uh, very, very knowledgeable. Very impressed. Uh, and so it wasn't Josh Hilliard. Correct. We, there's a different guy named Josh. So He's got a good name. We'll say there's Furter, <laughs> Furter came along just to observe, and then the other Josh was the forester that came yeah. to meet us. Yeah, so you know, uh, Josh kind of level set, uh, and, and he walked us through, we walked him through every segment of the property, different types of terrain, the high ground, the low ground, north, south, et cetera. And uh, we described both, you know, what our goals were. And as we did that, uh, you know, he provided a lot of good information, gave us some perspective. I, I would say one of the things that struck me, um, and, and I guess this is no surprise, his perspective was really about habitat, right? It was habitat protection and in, um, uh, encouraging and providing, uh, you know, opportunities to increase uh, native forage, um, remove and, and discourage non-native forage, uh, you know, improve the habitat for all wildlife, not just deer. And uh, so that was really fascinating, I thought. Um, and he was, I thought he was outstanding. So I think the information we've, we've gathered from him uh, was very good. And he's going to create a technical report that looks like it's going to be very detailed by, by different components of our property. And, uh, you know, I, I, mean, I, I think we, we didn't hear everything we were hoping we were going to hear, but, uh, but I'm not sure that wasn't surprising also. So, um, but it was very good. And we're going to pause for one last break to thank our partners at Morton Buildings for their support of this podcast. And Morton is the builder of wood-framed steel-sided buildings. You've probably seen them all over the place. If you ever drive through the country, you might see, oh gosh, folks are using these types of Morton Buildings for hunting camps. They're using them even for homes. They're using them for storage facilities, for, gosh, you can use them for tractors, ATVs, side-by-sides, food plot equipment. Um, you could use them as a skinning shack, a butchering shed, just a place to hang out after hunting. Uh, gosh, there's a lot of options you can do with those. As I've mentioned in the past, I've always imagined having one of these pole barn houses. It's it's still a dream. And uh, with 110 years of building experience, Morton has become one of the most renowned names in the industry. Their custom buildings include things such as their exclusive energy performer insulation package, which is going to lead to improved heating and cooling, and nearly zero maintenance high rib steel. If you'd like to learn more about Morton Buildings, you can visit mortonbuildings.com. So, so I want to get in more detail. Um, so we took him across the property to observe each different cover type is what he wanted to see. Mm-hmm. So we came with a map that showed the different soil types in the property. So he knew that there was two upland areas and then there was a lot of lowland. Right. So we want to go to these different upland areas where there's most likely to be manageable forest. Mm-hmm. And then he wanted to see different cover types. So for example, there was one section, that large stretch of pines you talked about at the beginning, we have this mm-hmm. big block of planted white pines. Um, so he wanted to observe that, take a look at that. He saw it. He said, Hey, this is planted way too thick. There's, we need to thin this out for sure. Um, that'd be good for wildlife, be good for habitat and for future value of ever selling any of these trees, um, as well. So he said, you know, he didn't, he didn't mention too many very detailed management, uh, prescriptions, but he did say this is a place you'd want to thin it and you would basically take out all the like subordinate trees, right? Leave all like the prime healthy trees. And then that would open up the canopy, get more sunlight down to the bottom, which would allow some regrowth. Cause right now there's no, 
white pine regrowth. Yeah, no right white pines regrowing because yeah. there's nothing coming through. The only yeah. thing that's grown and very sparsely is a couple maples that have grown. Yeah. And he pointed out that that is like the native thing that will be coming back. Like if, if you lose your pines and your hemlocks and your cedars, which right now, basically nowhere do we have regrowing cedars in the lowlands or in that pine, except for in the old fields. Right. Um, if when those eventually die out, what you're just going to get is a bunch of maples coming yeah, back. Red up. maple in particular, yep. right yep. there. Yep. Yep. Um, so the first things we saw that that stand, and um, then we moved to some of the old fields that are now overgrown with cherries and maples and and those Norways and the blue spruces and stuff that GP planted over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, some white pines cherry trees, um, stuff like that. And so we observed that cover type and took a bunch of notes. And as we go, mm-hmm. he's got this map, that soil map I talked about, and he's writing all these notes in there about each different set mm-hmm. of cover we're seeing. He observed different layers. So we observed what the canopy layer was. So what does it look like up high? Mm-hmm. He observed and wrote notes about what the mid canopy looked like. So you're young trees that are growing mid canopy kind of part way up there and then what's growing at the ground level so what kind of forbs and bushes and things might be growing and a pretty consistent thing other than the fields is that we don't have a mid canopy or a ground cover it's right. it's all high canopy stuff and then you can just see right through all the pines you can see right through all the hemlocks you just have these couple old fields that now provide some of that stuff and then you've got the whole lowlands where there's all these alders and cedars, and then that's thick, but it's just really wet, thick, swampy stuff. Um, so yeah, he said, "Hey, we're gonna want to thin this pan- this pine stand in the old fields." He said, "Well, you can pick and choose some of these different things here. You want to um, pull out some of these maples. You could selectively cut some maples and thin it out, and make some openings, and those also be the most." Excuse me. Those would also be the most natural places to try to reopen up to put food plots in again, of course, too. Um, so we talked about that. And then I think the area, though, that like, at least where I, you know, one of the ideas I had, we have this like seven to 10 acre block of mostly hemlocks, some cedars, just all mostly conifer trees. Yeah. And block. very mature and very dense. Yes, big, yeah. dense. Yeah. And so I've always known that that th- is great yarding. It's great winter cover. Like that's always been this place where you know like deer go in there during the winter. But the rest of the year, it's pretty much a deer desert. You can see across the whole thing, you know, there's no ground cover at all. Yeah, even though it's seven or eight acres worth of, of you know, uh, stand, I mean, you can see right through Yep, yeah. in a lot of places you, you, you see hundreds of yards across. Mm-hmm. There's no deer level cover. There's no deer level food. And it's about 10 acres. So it's about a quarter of our entire property and half of our property is swamp. So we really only have half the property you can do anything with. So we've got 20 acres of, of, of opportunity area. Of that 20 acres, five acres of it is the cabin and the yard and the surrounding stuff. So now we're talking we've got like 15 acres of manageable stuff, 10 acres of which is this deer desert of of old trees. So my idea coming into this was like, Hey, there's an opportunity where we could create some kind of opening in there to make that whole side of the property, but better by putting a food source over there. Um, the forester disagreed with me on that because he was of, and, and, and I still might veto him. <laughs> yeah. You really want to do it. Don't you? Um, I really want to do it. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll find some other options. Well, I want to do well, some more research, but his rationale was that 
the value of that 10 acres as yarding cover, as, as winter habitat for deer is so high and so important that breaking it up at all would be, would be too much of a negative. And so his recommendation was to try to work on implementing food around the edges of it, outside of it. Um, we have very limited opportunities to do that. So, And you've already kind of done some of that. We've done some of it. We can definitely expand that. And and maybe the right way to do it isn't to put a a one-acre food plot in the middle of it or a two-acre opening in the middle of it. Maybe maybe we just choose to do that on one of the edges so that you still keep this connected big block. You just take an acre out of one side. Maybe that's a way we can still do this. Um, But basically, that was, you know kind of put the kibosh on my big idea there and said that, yes, there is some marketable timber in there though. So like we could probably get something out, but he kind of said like his thoughts were that we maybe shouldn't do it. It'd be hard to get equipment back in there because of the nature of the ground. It's kind of low. There's these big like potholes and like rises and knobs and I don't know how to describe that habitat. But, um, but that was, you know, that was the one like, meh, that was kind of what I thought was going to be our big opportunity area. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of his concern, too, is that once we would get rid of that, we'd have a hard time regenerating that down the road if we wanted to because um, stuff was getting browsed so heavy. Like, we'd, we'd need right. to right. plant something and protect it with tree tubes or things like that Yeah, underneath. And his his thing, too, is, like, if we wanted to keep that even – the yard itself, that, that 10 acres, there's no regrowth at all, like right. you said. Yeah. So if we don't do anything, that is going to die out and be replaced by something else someday. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if we wanted this to still be a great yarding area 50 years from now or 100 years from now, we would need to go in there, take out just a couple things here, take out the maples where there are maples mm-hmm. in there to open up some sunlight and plant hemlocks or things like that that hopefully 50 years from now or 100 years from now would refill Yep. Um, so maybe that's going to be what we do. Maybe what we do is we're going to go in there, we're going to take a handful of little trees out here and there just enough to start regrowing some yard and cover type stuff yeah. again from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to put food on the edges maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure exactly how, I think our biggest challenge still, and our biggest, the biggest reason why we haven't been able to make bigger food plots is that it's so much timber, so thick, and we don't have equipment. So all we have is chainsaws. None of us are real good with them. Dad nearly had a heart attack <laughs> two years in a row. I think the second year he had the same thing. Um, so we need to figure out a way to more efficiently, both with time and money, get openings made. You've got to look on your face, Dad. What are you thinking? <laughs> I was just thinking the way we fix that is way for your your respective two boys to grow up, and then we got slave labor to do all the cutting for us. <laughs> we got a little weight on that, though. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like yeah. to make some progress before that. Um, but, yeah, so that's where we're at right now. We need to figure out a way to to open up these old fields some more because I think we're making progress there, but it definitely could be much more. And maybe we can get, like, basically the end, the net-net out of our conversation with the forester today was, like, you know, here's your, your biggest challenge is that you have a very small amount of marketable timber here that someone's going to come in and work with. So you got to thin these pines. You're going to take some red maples and a handful of things out of here. Maybe we'll take out a little bit of the edge of the hemlocks or something. That's a relatively small amount of timber that a company is going to want to come in and do. So maybe we can get someone to do that, but we're probably low on their list of priorities. Um, So that's where we're at. We're going to wait and see. We're going to get connected with a couple people and see if someone will take that job and how long that will take. I think the interim, 
I, well, I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts in the interim? Well, in the interim, I think because of what we experienced with the existing food plots, I mean, we ought to go back and look at how we expand those food plots further. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things we didn't say is that those two food plots are almost adjacent to that uh, big uh, hemlock stand. So if we could move them even closer, now you have an area where you have really heavy-duty yarding in the winter, and you've got this hopefully much significantly improved um, feeding area. Mm-hmm. You know, to some extent, uh, we're going to have to see what uh, comes back from the forester. We're going to have to look and see if we can find, you know, a partner that would help us do this. Um, but if we can't, I think that's our option. Yeah, I, I think there's some spots, too, that he pointed out where if we just got rid of some saplings and some smaller trees, there there was some good natural browse coming up mm-hmm. in certain spots. Um, if we could make that better, more open area, for get more sunlight to that, yep. um, that could potentially help us out and kind of create another edge then from you, know, you got the food plots and then to some natural vegetation that they'll they'd want to browse and then to the the hemlocks you kind of have that layered edge that could help and that wouldn't be a ton of there's nothing huge in there. there's a lot of just small saplings i think a lot of red maple in there again um that could be something there's a couple of different spots that he pointed out that we could potentially do that um yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's just got to go in there with a chainsaw or or what would be nice, especially on the other side of the creek, so where food plot one and two are, which are essentially one connected plot, but like a barbell. Um, I was thinking like, it might be worth renting a dozer and an operator to come in here because you just push all push that stuff all that out stuff, right? and it gets right. rid of the stumps, it gets everything. And, and a right. lot of the trees in there could be easily taken care of with a dozer yep. much more quickly than us with a chainsaw. And then you're stuck with 1,500 stumps. Right, dragon um, tops and yeah, and yeah. All that stuff. yeah. And so yeah. hire, you know, chipping a little money, we'll, we'll throw in five hundred bucks or whatever it is for the day mm-hmm. to get someone to come out here and just say, hey, here's and he could push out another acre, acre and a half probably of of ground there around those food plots, right? And then so between that and then taking chainsaws and doing some selective patches here and there and some other spots, all of a sudden we could create another two acres or more mm-hmm. of openings and yeah. food. Um, and that's pretty good progress. You could we could more yeah. than we could more than double what we've got going on now, probably with some stuff like that. Probably yeah, an I, afternoon I, of work for a, someone with a dozer. Yeah, yeah. And I really like the idea that you had, Mark, of you know being able to take out a, a protected area within those hemlocks that was adjacent to the hemlocks themselves and the uh, uh, the swamp on the other side and uh-huh. was close to the other food plots. To me, that made a lot of sense. But given what we heard, given you know our, our goals and objectives, I think what you just described probably makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think for now at least. I still really wish we could find a way to get something on the other side of the property. Because right now having all like the good – it's better than nothing. I'd rather have more where it is. But I'd also rather have stuff spread around too. So that, that gives us a wider area of influence of which will be attracting deer and moving deer through different parts of the property. Yeah. Just so that, you know, all of us have a better chance of seeing more deer too. Right. Right. Um, like I'd love to have a food source closer to closer to your spot, Dad, so mm-hmm. you've got a better chance of seeing some deer through there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can spread ourselves out and, and have deer passing through a larger area. Now, by having even one really good food source, it pulls deer from all over. So it, it is helping. Yeah. But it'd be nice to have multiple spots like what, that. You know, so we talked about uh, food plot three, which is a small food plot close to the cabin. It's not a place where you really want to hunt, but it is something that would pull deer through the area. What do you think of expanding that? So the issue with that and why I really have not, you know, 
put too much time or energy into it is that I don't think we want we don't want to have a great big food plot there because already our biggest challenge other than creating food our biggest challenge is not spooking deer yep. and if you already we have certain people with <laughs> we have a challenge with everybody getting on board with low pressure hunting tactics mm-hmm and so if we go waltzing around all over the place and spooking deer, that yeah. reduces our chances of being able to see them during yeah. daylight. Yeah, so that's what, a big challenge we what have. What I'm hearing you saying is we're going to bring deer closer to the camp where they're going to get spooked and effectively drive all the deer out exactly. of the area. Exactly. And that, you don't that wanna, makes sense to me. You don't want to do this like attract and repel thing. Right. Like if you attract a bunch of deer to yeah. a place where they're naturally going to come into contact with, with us and people, that's going to make things worse. As soon yeah. as we walk out the door to get ready to go yeah. right. hunt they're you know right in the morning they're going to be right there yeah you know so those like, other food plots are already pretty close yep oh yeah yeah they're close they're literally separated by a visual barrier sure. the creek and yep. the timber and stuff but yes yep. like they're within ear distance you can hear mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so that's always been a challenge we have simply because of how big the property how small the property is and where our fields are and locations like that's something we're working with already uh, i've always, you know having a little patch of stuff there has been like eh, something but i don't think it's been such an attractant that like we're pulling a bunch of deer and spooking them i think if we try to really expand that you would have that risk so anything that we were to try to plant on this side of the creek so within this like 10 acres around the cabin if we do it we need to be really careful about thinking th- about ways to block it from the cabin and making mm-hmm. sure we're not spooking deer there all the time. Yep. So I always thought, like, for example, on the far west side of the pines here, you could maybe try to, if we could remove some of those pines enough to open up like a quarter acre or something like that, that could be a cool spot to put a little food plot because it'd be huntable for you, but we would have to have some kind of visual barrier to block it from here, from the right. cabin. Right. So you could do that maybe by cutting down a bunch of trees and leaving all the treetops, like form a wall of treetops that visually block it, stuff like that. Um, so I think there's some creative solutions, but there's got to be enough distance and there's got to be some ways to block it. And, and then we have to be thoughtful about how we approach it because, again, you don't want a food plot that you have to walk by every time you're leaving or coming by or whatever and just spooking all the deer. Yep. And that's I think like that continues to be our biggest challenge is I think deer very quickly catch on to when we're here. Yep. And so the best hunt's always like the first day you're here and then it usually goes down subsequently unless you've got like, you know, in the rut and stuff, there'll be deer coming in from long distances and they'll pass through not realizing it. But your core deer, your local deer herd is going to move in daylight close to the cabin less and less as we make a ruckus and yeah. stuff. So that's why it'd be nice to have habitat improvements further away from the cabin that we can be hunting and taking advantage of that aren't as impacted by our presence. So one thing we've, you and I have talked about Mark a little bit is in the interim things that we could do is it is so thick back here, you know, take a chainsaw and go into some of these thick areas and just kind of carve out some trails, some shooting lanes, basically. Well, or, or deer trails too, where Mm -hmm. you're kind of influencing, you know, where they're going to be traveling. You can kind of dictate where you want them to go with how thick it is. If you clear some openings, they're, they're likely to, to use those. Um, your creatures of least they want the path yeah. of least resistance, least resistance yeah. so, so it's be. it's true you can find some ways to influence you might not attract deer but you can find ways to funnel deer moving mm-hmm. a little bit. Yep. again it's like any way to concentrate deer activity in some small way yep. is helpful here right 
Um, well, and you know, the other thing we really haven't talked about much, which is kind of what you're alluding to, Josh, is are the things we can do to our property that would enhance the movement of deer on the adjacent state property that we could hunt? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know about that. I think the biggest thing is like, we can't influence the public land, of course. So right. the only things we can do here is like make this as, a, as attractive of a thing as we possibly can. But then you could hunt the public land surrounding us as deer pass through the public mm-hmm. land to our spots. Absolutely. But it's just a matter of in a perfect world, we'd have more attractant of some kinds of food because that's the thing that's not everywhere else. So if we could have multiple food sources on our property, on different sides of our property, that would pull deer from all sides of the public surrounding us, then you'd have the opportunity to hunt that public and catch them passing through, hunt all sides of our property and catch them passing through, heading to these core regions on our farm that do have food. Um, And so that's what we're doing on a very small scale now. We just need to get some more openings made to, to increase that. I think that's the big thing, the big challenge. Yeah, we're making progress though, little by little, making progress. Yeah, we are. It's significant, and that is that is encouraging. Yeah, it's exciting. It's great to yep. see. Oh, you yeah. know, when we looked at the uh, trail cam pictures today, I was really excited to see what we saw. We saw yeah. a number of. Um, there was that one deer mark that you saw. Uh, maybe it was in March. hadn't uh, um, you know, Didn't have a set of antlers because he had already dropped them. But it was a big bodied, mature deer. Uh-huh. There was no question that was a buck, um, and a big buck. So I mean, I think we're we're making progress. So, uh, so my, my dream is like, we talked about this yesterday, my big goal, this is that by the time ever, my son is old enough to like shoot a deer, that this would be to a point where he could real realistically have an opportunity to come up here, be a deer camp. And there's like a great chance that he could shoot a deer. Like he'll be excited to go out for opening day because yeah, like last year we had two bucks on the pole and the year before that dad shot one, the year before that grandpa shot Mm -hmm. one. My hope is to have it back. I agree. Back to what it was like in the early 90s when I first came up. You know, there's a picture. We talked about this last uh, November in our podcast. There's a picture um, with two deer, at least two deer, on the buck pole behind the cabin and a, a little mark in his orange standing underneath them looking up at the deer <laughs> with his uh, uh, face in awe of what it would be like to shoot those deer. That's, I think, what you're talking about. Yeah. I'd like and to see that be an exciting day. And yeah. then I guess we got to make sure it's around for Josh's little one too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what are we yeah. going to call your little one? I mean, if you're, <laughs> if you're uh, you know, Frankfurter. <laughs> yeah. Is it, right. Is it baby furter? <laughs> furter Jr. or something. Furter Jr. Know. Oscar <laughs> Mayer. Yeah. I think my wife's going to have a problem with that. But. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That's, uh, that's my dream. What are your thoughts, Josh? Yeah. I mean, I, that's the same thing. I mean, I've. I don't think we've said any, but I, I do have one on the way, a little boy on the way. So, I mean, that's that'd be awesome to have a, a spot up here that, you know, I haven't been coming for very long, maybe six, seven years, but it's been a really special place for me to come and to have him have an opportunity to come up here and, and talk about what you were saying with Everett, to have those same sort of experiences with him. That'd be awesome. Yeah. And what about you, Dad? Well, I'm just thinking as we're talking about this, how excited I am to be able to experience that all over again. And, uh, you know, you, you know, one, probably the worst thing that could happen 
to Ken Roven would be for us not to have the next generation love to hunt and love to come up here and love to experience the things that we're experiencing. And um, I think what you guys are doing and what you're talking about, and I know the way you're going to you know, introduce your kids to, um, uh, to the place and to the woods and to the area around us, they'll have the same love. Because, you know, quite honestly, I'm a little worried about, you know, what's going to happen 20, 30 years. Uh, who's going who's gonna to take care of the place? Who's going to want to come up here? Uh, you know, especially as the number of people that um, are hunting and fishing continues to decline, at least in Michigan. You know, um, um, this is important to me. I know it's important to you. And I'm just so thrilled to hear that um, it, you you plan on you know having your kids here and 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 making it their own. So hopefully, before I die, um, I'll have the opportunity to see your kids uh, get a couple of you know monstrous bucks and be able to <laughs> celebrate that with you guys. That'd be pretty cool. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I'll try to be conservative here. I'm pretty modest. I'm quite a realist when it comes to a lot of things. So my guess is that Everett will shoot his first monstrous buck within four years. Is what I think. <laughs> I think that'll probably be when he, he'll put his first wall hanger on there by yeah, age five. Yeah. yeah, we were talking about that yesterday. I remember when you were four years old, or I guess that'd be five years old, and I brought you out to the blind out here about, oh, maybe two, 300 yards north of the where we're sitting right now in a blind that Grandpa had built for us, which was a nice box blind. And oh, Mark, Mark's like five years old, and he's down on the bottom of the blind playing with toys and doing his thing. And here I'm up there trying to, looking for a deer, right? <laughs> Every once in a while, Mark's head would pop up and say, did you see your deer yet, Dad? Where's the deer, Dad? <laughs> yeah, let's let's be real about this. We know that I was playing on the floor and you were sleeping. <laughs> let's, let's be honest here. <laughs> uh-huh. 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 Yeah, it did change say. pretty quickly. I will admit that. <laughs> Yeah, I think I became really uh, probably annoyingly bossy in the woods at an early age. <laughs> well, at a pretty ripe age, six, seven, eight years old, we were sitting in the same place we're sitting now, and you'd be reading the outdoor life and the, you know, the the various magazines telling us everything about deer and you know their habitats and their patterns and their habits and everything else. And, yeah, you should have yeah. seen this whole career coming, Dad. Oh yeah. <laughs> And the bossiness has stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't changed a bit. All right, it's, no. time, it's time for you to stop talking, Josh. And I think with that, we'll end the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Let's come back and do this one again this fall, hopefully over bigger, better uh, habitat improvements. And maybe, uh, I was just saying yesterday, I think this is the year, Dad, that you're going to kill an eight-pointer up here. Okay. Excited to so do So maybe we should record a podcast right after that. That'd be fun. All right, that's a plan. And that will do it for today. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed these stories and a little bit of insight into what we've got going on up at our deer camp. Hopefully we have a lot more stories to share in the coming months and years as we continue to progress down this road of of trying to rebuild this really special place for us. And um, I'm sure we'll learn some things along the way that I'll be sharing. So make sure you're staying tuned on the Wired Done Instagram account. That's where I'm sharing a lot of these stories, a lot of quick videos and stuff there, as well as our Facebook page. And um, I think with that, I'll let you go. Thanks for joining in. Thanks for being a part of this community. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules 
from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 